his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and what is good in sight of the Lord. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. The smallest seed in the world. Yet, when planted, grows up. Rabbi. Sins are forgiven, my son. Did you hear that? He has forgiven his sins. I thought only God could do that. No blasphemy. He knows. It is blasphemy. Is that your wish, my friend? Well, answer me. Tell me which is easier. To say his sins are forgiven. Or say he. Get up. And walk. Son of man has authority to forgive sin.
when I was a, a kid growing up in Kentucky, as many of you know, our family was not religious. We, we weren't people of faith. We didn't attend church and worship Jesus. But there was a, a book in the house. It was a, a children's book of Bible stories. I wish I still had it, but I remember it was kind of, you know, long and had these, uh, these pictures in it. And I, I can remember as a little boy flipping through those pages, looking at those pictures and reading some of the stories. And about the only thing I knew about Jesus was he was God's son and he died on a, on a cross. Beyond that, I didn't know much of anything, didn't understand what any of that really, uh, really uh, meant. It wasn't until I was a little bit older that I, that, and I was introduced to Christ that I came to fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. But the truth is there are a lot of people in our community and our nation, especially around the world, who don't really know who Christ is. He's the Son of God. They, they've heard that title. But what does that mean? Uh, when you look at the different generations in America today, most people do believe that Jesus was real. In fact, depending on the particular generation, somewhere between 87 and 90%, 96% of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person, that he really did live. But about half of Americans, 50 to 60%, believe he was God, which means the other half, 40 to 50%, do not believe he was God. And so there's a lot of... There's a lot of confusion about who this Son of God, who Jesus Christ really is. And so over the next few weeks leading up to Easter in this sermon series on the Son of God, we're going to look at various scenes from the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. Show you a video clip uh, from the movie The Son of God. And, and, and you know, movies don't go exactly verbatim, but they tell the story in a beautiful and powerful way. And then we're going to look at those biblical texts, and in each of those stories, each of these scenes, we're going to learn some things about who Jesus, the Son of God, really is and what he can do. And so the story you just saw is one of my favorites in the Gospels. It's found uh, in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn there with me, please. The Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Let's see what we can learn about Jesus Christ today because this story tells us so much. It begins in verse 17 by telling us that Jesus was teaching and interestingly there were a lot of religious leaders from all around the Middle East who had come to where he's teaching this, this particular day to check him out, many of them being skeptics and, 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 and just like the uh, rabbi in the, in, in the video kind of antagonistic toward Jesus and what he was teaching. So he's teaching them there in God's blessing. And in verse 18, Jesus' teaching is interrupted by four men who are carrying a friend on a stretcher. And this friend was paralyzed. They were wanting to get him to Jesus, but the crowd was so thick, even heavier than what was depicted in the movie, so they couldn't, they couldn't get there. They went up to the top went to the place they, they determined was over where Jesus was standing and teaching, and they, they opened up the roof and they lowered their friend through the roof right in front of Jesus, similar to what you saw in the video clip a moment ago. And in verse 20, verse 20, seeing their faith, notice what it says, not just the four friends but also the man who was paralyzed because when Jesus does a work, it's always because of faith, and you have to have faith you have to believe if Jesus is going to do something in your life. But it's amazing when you have friends. Now listen, 
when you have friends who are believers, when you have friends who have faith, how God can use them to impact you. And some of you have been changed because there were people of faith who loved you and God used them to bring you to a place of faith. And so these friends and this paralyzed man have faith. And Jesus looks at him in verse 20 and says, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And in the next verse, the scribes, Pharisees, the religious teachers and leaders, they react. Who is this man? Who does he think he is? Speaking blasphemy, forgiving sins. Only, only God can do that. Only God can forgive somebody's sin. And for him to say, I, I, your sins are forgiving, forgiving, he's making himself equal with God. That's blasphemy. It's wrong, they say. And then as the story continues in verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And uh, so he says to them, as you saw in the video a moment ago, which is, uh, which is easier in verse 23 to say your sins are forgiven or say get up and walk. And so that you can know in verse 24 that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the guy to get up and walk. And that's exactly what happened. Now there's several things in this story that just jump out that tell us about the Son of Man, who Jesus, Son of Man, really is, the Son of God. And, and the title that's used in this, this passage, interestingly, is not Son of God. What is it? Son of... In fact, that's a term that is used, a title that is used for Jesus many times. In fact, Jesus often referred to himself as Son of Man. It, it happens 88 times in the New Testament. Son of Man, 88 times. What does it mean when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Well, it's pointing out a, a couple of things. First, it means that Jesus was the promised Messiah that the Jewish people had been looking for. God had promised Israel that he would send a Messiah who would establish an eternal kingdom of peace and blessing, but they misunderstood what God had said because they thought the Messiah was going to come up and, and, and set up a, an, an earthly kingdom, an earthly kingdom that would be for them and them alone, an earthly kingdom just for the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. They didn't understand that it was a different kind of kingdom, even though God in the Old Testament made it pretty clear. For instance, one prophecy in the book of Daniel, if you look on the screen, Daniel chapter 7, let's look at uh, two verses, verses 13 and 14. Here's this prophecy. He said, I, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like, and by the way, anytime you see the clouds of heaven, it's, it's referring to God's throne. With the clouds of heaven, one like a, what's the title there? And that's how Jesus often referred to himself. One like the Son of Man who was coming. Notice, and he, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. He came up to, to, the, to, to the Father, to God, and was presented before him. Now let's look at verse 14. And, and to him, to the, to the Son of Man, was given, notice that, dominion what is dominion you're a king you rule you have authority and glory and the kingdom and all the peoples and nations and men of every language notice that it's worldwide it's not limited to a particular ethnicity it's not limited to a particular language group it's not limited to a people of a particular background it is available for people everywhere all nations, all languages to do what? Serve him. So he's a king. He's an eternal king. He's a king for all people. But, but verse 14 continues, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. 
It'll never see an end. It's eternal, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There's nothing Satan can do. There's nothing humanity can do. There's nothing sin can do. There's nothing this world can do. There's nothing anyone can do to destroy the kingdom that the Father has given the Son of God, i.e. the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus is referring to himself as Son of Man, one of the things, not the only thing, But one of the things he means by that is I am the promised Messiah. I am the eternal king. I have an eternal kingdom. And so in in using that, that word, that title for himself, Jesus is saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. But it also points to Jesus' humanity. As an example in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, God speaks to Ezekiel and refers to Ezekiel 93 times as a son of man. Not meaning that Ezekiel was Messiah, but just saying, hey, you son of man. In other words, you're you're a son of a man. You are a human being. You are flesh and blood. And so to refer to Jesus as the son of man not only points to his, his being the Messiah, the eternal kingdom, the eternal king with an eternal king, meaning he's Lord, but it also points to the fact that As he was walking among us, he was human as well. He was flesh and blood. See, when Christ was born at Bethlehem, he took upon himself humanity. We call it in theology the incarnation, leaving heaven, coming to earth, and becoming like us. But when he did that, he did not give up his deity. And so he existed before Bethlehem. He is son of God. But at Bethlehem, he also became son of man. He is God and became man, fully God, fully man today. We often refer as, as the God-man. So who is Christ? Who is, who is Jesus? He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He is divine. He is human. He is eternal. His earthly existence, if you will, his fleshly existence began at Bethlehem, but he did not begin at Bethlehem. He's the eternal king, and he has an eternal kingdom, and he is Lord, he is deity, he is God. And so Jesus says, hey, from the very beginning, if you want to know who I, Son of God, am, you need to understand these things. So here's the question. If Jesus, the Son of God, is Son of Man, meaning He's the eternal King, but He took upon Himself humanity, what kind of Son of God, what kind of Son of Man, what kind of person is He? And this is where I want to park for just a a few, few moments and share with you three things about the kind of person Jesus is. And the first is this. He's someone who is approachable. See, one of the interesting things to me in this story is Jesus is teaching. There's a large crowd. I mean, the crowd is so thick that they can't get through to where Jesus is. I mean, they, they can't even push their way through the crowd. It's a big crowd. You remember last Sunday we looked at a passage where there were thousands of people following Jesus, and in fact they were trampling on top of one another. So it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to be surrounded by masses not just small groups, but masses of people. I mean, just like, you know, what, what we say, thick as sardines in a can, we just, just packed in there. And here's these four guys, these four men, good friends. They have faith. 
they have a friend who's paralyzed and he has faith. And they want to get their friend to Jesus so badly so he can be healed, but they can't. What do they do? They climb up to the roof, they open, they, they tear the tiles away, they, they dig it out, uh, and, and, and they, they make an opening and they, they lower their friend down to Jesus. And here's Jesus now. He's, he's teaching and, and, and his teaching's interrupted. And I can, I can imagine everybody's just looking around what's going on, the debris's falling down. Did you notice Jesus never got upset? Did you notice that? As soon as the man was lowered and was there in front of Jesus, Jesus didn't say, hey, guys, what do you think you're doing? He didn't say, let's wait till, can't you all wait till, till, till lunch, wait till we're done here? There's never a moment that is the wrong moment for you to approach Jesus. If you're breathing, you, you are here, this, this is a good moment. This is a good day for you to approach Jesus. And he'll welcome you. In fact, if there's somebody who wants to stand up right now and say, I'm ready to get saved, we'll stop and we'll pray with you, brother or sister. There's, there's never a bad time to come to Jesus. Why? Because that's what he wants. He wants you to come. He's, a, he's approachable. Some of you are not followers of Christ. You believe he's real. You're, you're one of those Americans who believe that Jesus really did live and you may believe he's the son of God, not fully understand that, but you, you believe he's the son of God, but, but you're not his follower. You've never come to Jesus. You've never given your life to Jesus. And I want you to know something. There are people in this room right now praying for you. There are people in this room cheering for you. There, there, there may be somebody in your life who invited you to come to church today. Just like our brother was talking about, he, he, he had an invitation up there in New York and it changed his life. See, God, God sends people into our lives to let us know he wants us. He wants to know us. He wants a relationship with us. See, Jesus, he's so approachable. I, ha I had a cousin in Kentucky when I was pastoring there as a young man who was lost, and I learned uh, early January, he, he told me, on New Year's Eve, he made a New Year's resolution, and he's the only guy I've ever known to make this kind of resolution. His resolution was that, that he was going to, to get saved by the end of that year. <laughs> that was his resolution. And so that first Sunday in January, guess what? He showed up at church. I looked out there and I saw Clyde, I saw my cousin, and I was surprised. I didn't know he was coming. He'd never been there before, but he was in church. He came back on Sunday night. He came back on Wednesday night, and he did that every week for two months, and we talked and talked, and, 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 and then I went to Clyde's house and sat in his kitchen with him, and we just opened the New Testament and went through the, the gospel, and he got on his knees and gave his heart to Christ. Now, let, let me ask you, those of you who are not followers of Christ, what are you waiting on? It's interesting, you know, we, we are so determined to, to do things in every area of life. Some of you right now are already planning your vacations for this summer. You, you work on plans for your retirement. 
You work on plans for your career. You work on plans for your grandparents for when you're going to go see your grandkids. We're determined. We make plans. We do all of this stuff. Why is it that we leave our spiritual life, our relationship with Jesus, our eternity, the most important thing in life? Why do we just leave that for whatever may be? If you believe in Christ and you know he's approachable, why don't you make the decision to say, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm committing myself to Jesus. He's approachable. And don't let anything stop you. Something else we learn about the kind of person Jesus is, not only is he approachable, but he's also the one who forgives sins. That was the the thrust of the story uh, here in Luke 5, that Jesus forgives sin. Listen, the very first thing he said to the paralytic was, friend, your sins are forgiven. He said that before he healed him. You do know that forgiveness is the greatest need any of us have. That that forgiveness is, is more important than good health. That, that forgiveness is more important than long life. It's the greatest need that any of us have. There's a police department in a small town up in Pennsylvania, and a couple of years ago they got a, they got a letter. didn't have a, a name or an ad, return address, just a letter explaining the circumstance. And inside was, was, a five, was $5. And it was a man who uh, said he was in California, but no name, no address in California, and, and, and he'd been feeling guilty for 44 years because back in the 1970s, <laughs> he'd gotten a $2 parking ticket in that little town. And he said, I'd always intended to pay it, but I just never did. And so he put in $5, a little bit for interest, although... Uh, Inflation meant that $2 was now worth $20. But anyway, he sent the five bucks and the letter. And the police chief of that little town in Pennsylvania said back in the 70s when, when, when they wrote the ticket, it was, it was for a car registered in Ohio, and they didn't have the technology back then to track cars and registered in other states. And it's just, a, you know, just an interesting story to me about the, the human situation because all of us, All of us have stuff inside us, don't we? Stuff inside that bothers us. Regrets. Guilt. And and the truth is all of us are guilty of sin. The Bible teaches we sin not just by what we do but what we think and what we say and at times even what we don't do when we should do it. You've heard me say this before, but let me just reiterate it again, especially for those of you who are new. How many, how many times in a, in a day do you think a really good person sins? Okay? I mean, just think about that. In a, in a, good, in, in a day, how many times does a really good person sin? I mean, think something wrong. Do something wrong. Say something they shouldn't have said or fail to do what they should have done. How many times in a day do you think a good person sins? Once, twice, three, five? I mean, I, w- I would think if somebody only three times a day thought something they shouldn't think, said something they shouldn't say, did something they shouldn't do, or failed to do something they should have done, that's a pretty good day, right? Well, think about that. Do a little math. If you only do that three times a day in a year, you've got a thousand sins, and that's if you had no bad days that year. At the end of an average lifetime of 70, 80 years, you've got 70, 80,000 sins, and that's if you never had any bad days. The truth is, we're all guilty. We all need forgiveness. 
Jesus is the one who can and will forgive, and he's eager to. And then the last thing is connected to the second thing, and that's that he heals. See, this paralytic got up and walked, didn't he? But there's more to the story. See, in the story, the religious leaders were upset that Jesus said to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. Because they understood that only God could forgive sins. And in Jesus saying that, Jesus was making himself God. He was claiming deity. But there's also more to it than that. See, they had this wrong thinking. They had this bad theology. They thought, like some today think, it's still wrong, that if you are sick, if you have a physical problem, it is the direct result of a particular specific sin you've committed. Some of, some of us sometimes think like that ourselves, don't we? But that's not biblical thinking. We get sick because we have a sinful body living in a sinful world. Not because if I sin A, God's going to punish me with B. But that was their thinking. And Jesus, to correct that thinking and to prove to them that as Son of God and Son of Man, he had both the authority to, he had the authority to heal, he said, get up and walk, because to them, to their, to their wrong way of thinking, if this man got up and walked, that would prove it, that would settle it. Jesus really can forgive. Now, most of us have known people that God's healed physically. That's not the only kind of healing we need. Some of us need healing in our, in our relationships. Your family's falling apart. Your friendships are, are strained. Some of us need healing emotionally. Things have happened in the past. People have said things and done things and we're hurting emotionally. There's no freedom as long as we hold on to it. But see, you see, ultimately, all our suffering, all our sickness, all our pain is a, is a result of sin. It may not be a specific sin I committed, but I'm a sinner living in a sinful body. You're a sinner in a sinful body, and I do things and you do things, and all these broken relationships and all these scars, all this sickness ultimately is the result of the fact that, that it's, a, it's a sinful world and we're sinful people. And we're prisoners of we need healing emotionally, relationally. Some of you need healing spiritually. And some of you need healing physically. I don't know what kind of healing you, you need, but I do know that the beginning place for being healed of all these sicknesses is, is repentance and forgiveness. It's, it's, it's faith. And it's coming to Christ and let, letting him begin healing those scars and wounds. Let, letting him free you from the baggage of the past that keeps holding you down. Receiving his forgiveness and, and maybe for some of you extending forgiveness to someone else because as long as you hold on to the grudge, you're the one that, that, that's made sick by it. So Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, the Eternal One, the Human One, he wants you to come to Him and He will forgive. And in that forgiveness, you will find all sorts of healing and restoration for your life. There's a man whose who's, his, his name is Jamie. His family moved to the Gulf Coast and about six months after that, uh, Katrina struck. 
And just as they got everything uh, put back together, discovered that he had stage four cancer. That's not good. And, and for weeks and months, he, he was a believer. He, he prayed and he prayed for God to heal him and for God to heal him and for God to heal him. And one winter morning, he, he, he took the trash outside and he said it was so cold that it felt like razor blades just cutting his flesh. And as he was carrying the, the garbage out, he was praying for God to heal him of cancer. God, heal me, heal me, heal me. And he, he, he made his way back into the house and said after he closed the door, he just collapsed to his knees and prayed what for him was the most challenging prayer he's ever prayed. His prayer was not for God to heal him, but for God to take care of his wife and children if he was not healed. He said in that moment of what he called spiritual surrender, of simply surrendering to the Lord, he said, I found peace. And by the way, later, the physical healing wrote a book about it. It all starts with forgiveness. It all starts with spiritual surrender. It all starts with coming to Christ for His sake, for His glory, for whatever His plan is, for whatever His will for my life is. Only in that kind of surrender do we find the kind of healing deep in our soul that we ultimately all need. And that's what I'm asking you to do right now. 